0: We're focusing now on uh, what, until <clears throat> recent months, has been the, the most dynamic sub-regional uh, organization in uh, modern Arab history, namely the Gulf Cooperation Council, established May 25, 1981, uh, and in the shadows uh, of uh, death on that doorstep with regard to uh, the uh, war between Iran and Iraq which uh, lasted eight years. Um, And so when the GCC came into uh, existence, uh, many people from outside the region subjected it to ridicule uh, and dismissal, uh, because they had looked at so many previous uh, attempts at Arab uh, regional cooperation, integration, unity. Those words are important. And because so many had not worked out uh, or even gotten off the table beyond the rhetoric, um, their sights were deliberately lower uh, in order to uh, be more realistic, practical, and feasible in their reach. And so the key word was and has been all along cooperation. Uh, Of course, the goal... Uh, in their first agreement, the Economic Unity Agreement of June 6, 1981, that's just two and a half weeks after it was GCC was established, uh, people misinterpreted that. They saw the word unity in it and said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, they couldn't be less united, and the prospects for them to be united or remote. Uh, but that agreement was more a blueprint a framework uh, for reference for how they might formulate their development plans from then forward so as to have less duplication, less waste, less competition, at least of the harmful kind. And they have indeed established far more than any other previous sub-regional Arab organization in modern Arab history it it uh, has its share of uh, detractors and they outnumber its uh, supporters or boosters or those who would say something positive about it but here we try to ask that all step back try to be detached analytical clinical and objective and fair to reality this Collectivity of six entities, and Ambassador Ziada, is, uh, immediate past ambassador to one of the member countries, uh, worked closely with the United States to bring about a unanimous resolution, July 15, 1987, uh, of the United Nations Security Council calling for a ceasefire in the Iran Iraq war. Iraq accepted it immediately. Iran took 13 months and uh, that was directly responsible for more death and maimed human beings. Uh, We could not have done that with the United States. Uh, 15 votes in the UN Security Council. The last previous time something like that had happened, 15 out of 15, was during the Korean War. Well, actually that wasn't 15 out of 15, that was 14. And the Soviet ambassador had gone to the bathroom and that's when they voted. And uh, he'd never been to the bathroom since. Uh, the, uh, and you can see it, I think, uh, the effects thereof. Uh, so that was quite a feat, but it was the DCC countries that brought the non-permanent members, the 10 uh, to the table. Uh, Secondly, they worked with the United States and Saudi Arabia and Pakistan to uh, bring about the end of the Soviet invasion and occupation of Afghanistan. And in so doing, doing that drove the last nail in the coffin of the uh, uh, international communism and the Red Army. And the Soviet Union imploded shortly thereafter. Uh, We could not have done it alone. We did it with them, through them, by them. Uh, And thirdly, uh, working together, they prevented the Iranian Revolution from expanding to the western shores of the Gulf. Uh, Give credit where credit is due. Uh, Working together, those were uh, accomplishments of no small moment. Uh, Now, we have uh, four speakers and two commentators, and I've asked them to try to be as succinct effective forthright and uh, commentary as possible, and to please recommend steps forward to improve the existing situation. Our first speaker is Dr. Mohammed As Salami. I had not met him until he came to this conference there, but he's had an important task and role, and uh, let's listen to his perspective. He's working on uh, Arab-Iranian issues uh, from Riyadh. Dr. Salami.
1: Good morning. Uh, It is a pleasure to participate in this conference, and many thanks to the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations, and special thanks to Dr. John Anthony for inviting me. Since the organizer, uh, and because of my specialty, I will talk about the Arab-Iranian relationships, and it is about the Iranian uh, sectarian geopolitical project in the region generally, with every means of constitutional facts and factual evidence. But before that, it is important to mention that Iran is our neighbor. We share history, culture, geography, and religion with them. And that is a reality we cannot change. Let's start with a shedding light on Iranian constitution. It is very important to look at the Iranian constitution to understand the Iranian rule in the region. In Article 154 of the Iranian constitution says that Iran considers the independence, freedom, and the establishment of law and justice government are uh, progressive of all people around the, the world. And therefore, the Iranian Islamic Republic of Iran supports the legitimate struggle of the oppressed against oppressors in the whole world. Here, uh, since we're in the United States, and let's imagine that Canada or Mexico becomes a revolutionary country with a hegemonic project. What will be the uh, American react look like? That is our situation in the region when we are dealing with Iranian project. So the Yemen case is an excellent example of that. We are talking about Iran here, and Iran has sent all type of weapons to the Houthis to kill Yemenis and to fire the ballistic missiles towards Saudi Arabia, Uh, I mean, the border uh, areas and all the way to Mecca. Another paragraph, uh, our article, is the paragraph 5 of Article 2 of Iranian Constitution, which is another important uh, paragraph we need to deal with. This paragraph says that belief in the imama, which is the belief, the Jafari principle and continuous leadership is an essential base for the revolution's continuity. Allows me here to wonder, isn't this text an express provisions that gives Iran the right to interfere in the other countries' internal affairs? It is a continuous revolution. It is not limited to the Iranian borders. Article 12 said that the official religion of Iran is the Islam in Twelver School, or Ja'fari. And this article cannot be changed. This is a sectarian article that uh, uh, defines Iran as a sectarian country by definition, excluding Iranians inside, leave alone our side. The Sunnis, the Christian Jews, Mazaradusians, you call them, they are not considered to be Iranians. So therefore, the problem is not our, our Sunni Shia problem, it is the ideology that leads the Iran and rules the Iranian uh, government. The cries and disturbance in the region are clear evidence of the Khomeini legacy of Shia geopolitics that seeks general strategic policies drawn up the Iranian regime decision makers, who are fully aware of the sectarian, historical, and pragmatic dimensions of this area. The Iranian leadership has been working in geographic expansions to promote Iranian interest in the targeted countries and to shape what they call the Shia Shia crescent, and this can be achieved through encouraging Shia minorities in the region to revolt against local government by politicizing and militarizing the Shia in countries like Iraq, Syria, Yemen, Bahrain, and other places. So where does this come from? The Shia two political strategy resulted from the Iranian leadership's Fifth imbor- Improvement Plan of the year 2003, within the framework of the 20-year pact, which aims to establish Iran as a major regional power by, 1925, uh, by 2025. Uh, so that's the, the this 50-year plan of administration. Uh, benet- uh, will see Iran aspire for the all expansions of Shias in the Arab world and Islamic countries. The close Iranian relationship with the terrorist groups is not fiction or political speculations. It is a reality. And we have all the, the evidence of the relation between Iran and ISIS and Iran and Al-Qaeda before that. And what happens in Iraq, for example, when ISIS attacks Sunni cities like Fallujah, and Ambar, Uh, Ramadi and others, is a really uh, pure fact of how uh, ISIS deals with the issues inside Iraq. So let's us consider this uh, for a moment. The conclusion that can be drawn is, yes, Iran is the only beneficiary of the ISIS behavior in the region. Today, Iran, with its ballistic uh, uh, missiles... Threatens international peace and advances their track record of terrorism and terrorist operations by targeting diplomatic missions and diplomats. United States was the one first can, uh, country which was attacked. I mean, their embassy in Tehran 1979, Saudi embassy in 1987, Saudi embassy again in 2006 the British-French embassies, and the assassination of many diplomats, whether inside and outside Iran. The aforementioned the Iranian expansions project, sectarian schemes, and the terrorist operations have been uh, mandated to the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, IRGC, and its main curbs, uh, uh, curbs uh, the, namely the Quds forces, and its problematic leader, Qasem Soleimani. Who goes all the way from Iraq, border Iraq and Syria, and without any fear, without any fears of any international uh, I mean uh, following, for example, for the International Coalition against ISIS. So he's just going freely from one city to another. By the way of conclusion, yesterday some speakers stressed the necessity of rebuilding countries. And like Iraq and Syria, which is very important, I guess, and everybody would agree with that. But before rebuilding the, the countries, we have to stop the tools of demolishing countries. So that is, you cannot build while there is somebody demolishing and destroying the countries. So the key, the key priority for GCC countries and the, reg- and the region's safety is to order Iranian behavior and to deter Iranian behavior, and that requires linking the nuclear deal with the ballistic uh, program, ballistic missile programs, and interference in the affairs of other country, Arab countries or regional countries' internal affairs, and the handcuff of Iran, IRGC, and its affiliated militias as well as coping with the terrorist organizations of mutual interest like ISIS. In other words, the issue of Iranian regime cannot be limited to the nuclear program, though, it's, uh, uh, though it is important, but more to the Iranian behavior in the region and beyond that. Otherwise, any deal with Iran will be a failure diplomacy, and it, will, uh, and it was in the case of the... Uh, the nuclear deal of 2004-5 is a very uh, good example of that. It didn't stop Iranian behavior in the region, but uh, in the other, I mean, uh, Iran see that deal as a green line for uh, become more aggressive in the region. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you.
0: Thank you for uh, being succinct in keeping within. Uh, Limited time schedule. We next turn to Dr. Uh, uh, Abdullah Babu, uh, who has uh, a checkered record of achievements. Uh, there, he's been closely involved with the Gulf Research Meetings uh, held annually in uh, the University of Cambridge, then United Kingdom. Uh, there is no annual summer uh, convention that draws more specialists on Arabia and the Gulf uh, to deliberate for the better part of four days in a dozen or more workshops uh, talking about diversification of economies. Uh, He's been involved with the diversification of of analysis and description with regard to uh, substance uh, of the realities of this uh, particular uh, region. He's also the founder and director of the world's only PhD program in Gulf Studies at Qatar University. Please welcome Dr. Abdullah Babu.
2: Thank you, uh, John uh, Duke, for this uh, uh, introduction and uh, I want to echo uh, my previous, uh, previous speakers and colleagues to thank you uh, for the kind invitation and to thank your capable team for organizing this uh, very important meeting. Your Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, um, I'm going to be talking about the GCC uh, states and their role in the, in the region. And uh, I see many of you here with uh, gray hair <laughs> and maybe some without hair, like me. And, uh, and you don't remember the Gulf, especially the young generation, when it was backwater, impoverished, uh, very quiet region. And now, for those of you who've been to the Gulf, you will see that is not no longer the case. The Gulf has evolved, has changed, has transformed into a very modern uh, region. Thanks in large part to uh, uh, the uh, energy uh, uh, wealth that was uh, found there and to the exports of that energy uh, globally and to the revenues that have been used to develop uh, the region. Now, with that, a little introduction um, you've, uh, the Gulf states were uh, basically uh, very vulnerable. Um, as my previous speaker has mentioned, <clears throat> there is, of course, a uh, threat from Iran, and uh, John Duke has also talked about um, the invasion of uh, then the Soviet Union to Afghanistan, and the conflicts around them. Uh, so these Gulf states started to get together and formed what is known as the Gulf Cooperation Council, uh, the acronym is the GCC. The GCC has also, as John Duke had explained, has Um, achieved a number of goals. Of course, it set for itself a very large uh, and and very ambitious goal, Uh, and it has so far achieved quite a lot, and we should applaud it for what it has achieved. Some of its achievement, of course, is um, the the custom union, uh, the uh, common market, uh, the uh, linking all the GCC together, the security agreement that uh, has been signed, uh, and uh, uh, the, the rail project, the uh, electricity network, and all of those achievements uh, that basically help to get the people together, because the people of the Gulf states are basically uh, the same uh, people, having and sharing the same culture, and uh, the same destiny. And they wanted to work together to establish uh, a regional organization that can not only protect their security, but also see their ambition being fulfilled. Um, that has been achieved. At, uh, uh, of course, uh, it took some time. There was a lot of shortfalls. Um, their expectations were high. But nevertheless, there is a lot of work, or there was a lot of work that was being done to um, to support this uh, uh, GCC project. The GCC, as a sub-regional organization, was kind of a lighting road for other regional organizations in the region. As you know, other regional organizations in the Arab world have not really functioned well, be it the Arab League, the Maghreb Union, uh, et cetera, but the, and other um, uh, uh, other uh, integration projects that have uh, failed. The GCC so far has stood the time, stood the test, despite all the different uh, challenges that it has faced. It has protected the region. Uh, it has been explained earlier. It has helped <coughs> to make the Gulf states um, uh, stand on their feet. And, uh, and if you go now and see the Gulf, it's, a, it's an island of prosperity, and stability in the very turmoil region. Now, it was also acted as a model for what could be future integration in the region. Most of these projects could have a spillover effect to uh, the regional countries if they succeeded and when when they are complete. Also, the wealth that was accumulated in the GCC has been very useful, not only for its own people, but also for the people from the region who come to work and find jobs and opportunities. And there is, of course, remittances that they uh, send back home. The Gulf states or the GCC states have also invested in the uh, many uh, regional countries and tried to uh, help them uh, develop. And we've seen, and there was a hope that the GCC states could actually transform the whole region uh, as well uh, as the GCC and make it a much larger, uh, prosperous, and a stable uh, region. But things don't always go as planned. Uh, you've all heard about the Arab Spring and, and the chaos that was created after that. And um, the GCC states... Uh, obviously um, had different opinions about the Arab Spring, so we, there was like, competition between them. Um, some countries supported the, the revolutions and the uprising, and other countries were basically counter-revolutionary. Uh, not only they were competing, but um, they went to the extent that they are, even had proxy wars, as we see in some areas, especially in, uh, in, in uh, Libya. So, unfortunately, the Arab Spring brought chaos with it. Uh, and, of course, any revolution always has, uh, has a chaos. And, but it had a very negative effect on how the GCC states work. And that's not to say that the GCC states always had uh, similar views about everything. They always, like any uh, regional organization, um, the European Union as an example, and when it comes to foreign policy, security policy, each country has its own uh, way of doing things, and, but they are trying to coordinate and cooperate. Uh, but you've also heard recently about the uh, Gulf crisis, or what is it called also, the Qatar crisis. And that's uh, another uh, issue that has really hampered uh, the GCC uh, work. As you know, the GCC is based on the principle that they will work and coordinate uh, and cooperate leading, as John Duke uh, Anthony has just mentioned, to unity. Um, That cooperation, that coordination, is achieved through a number of uh, uh, institutions that they have established and a number of uh, policies and uh, strategies that they have done. Um, Of course, they have created something called the Supreme Council. And at that Supreme Council, decisions have to be taken uh, 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 on uh, uh, majority for less substantive issues um, and uh, and they have to have a unanimous decision for all substantive issues. So you have to remember that point, Mm -hmm. how decision is taken at the top at the Supreme Council. They also signed a lot of treaties and one of the treaties is of course the common market and the common market calls for free flow of goods, people and capital. And again this is a very important issue that uh, that they have signed, and of course this has benefited the GCC states. They have also signed a number of security uh, arrangements, uh, they basically became um, a, a, a security community uh, that they don't fear attacks from themselves, uh, and they will uh, any attack against one country is of course an attack against uh, uh, against the others. They've also signed a number of uh, other. Uh, Uh, security uh, agreements with international partners especially the global powers mainly the United States now what does this Gulf crisis do to uh, to the GCC and this is uh, something that perhaps it hasn't really been uh, discussed much it is the impact of this Gulf crisis in my opinion uh, is going to be devastating because it basically stops It goes against the treaties that they have signed, which is the free flow of goods, people, and capital. And the decision uh, to to do so uh, was taken not at the Supreme Council, where you have to have a unanimous decision. It was taken outside the GCC mechanisms. And with that, one would well ask, What will come of the GCC? The GCC, as you know, is a regional integration project. It's a block that was supposed to work together based on treaties. It's a rule-based organization. And if you lose that trust, and if you lose, if you don't uh, follow the rules that the GCC has established for itself, it becomes defunct. And this is, unfortunately, what is happening now, that the GCC um, is not functioning as it's supposed to be. Its institutions are almost paralyzed. Uh, All the projects that we were hoping and looking forward for their achievements have been delayed, canceled, because they are not even talking to each other because of the current crisis. There is a a summit that's supposed to take place um, in Kuwait uh, in December. And there is a big question mark whether it will take place at all. And this will be the first time in in the GCC history. We are really seeing something really challenging to the whole project. And the GCC was supposed to be, uh, on a security issue, uh, a block against... Iran, for example. But what is happening with this uh, crisis is they are pushing other GCC states against Iran. It's counterintuitive. What are, you, are we going to achieve from this crisis? Where is it going to lead the GCC project? Um, are we, who's benefiting from it? It's not the GCC people. It's not the GCC states. It's not the, the leaders in the GCC. Uh, It seems to me that that what is uh, 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 the the countries that are benefiting from this are the same, the countries that the GCC were supposed to um, uh, uh, protect themselves against them. So we are not helping uh, ourselves. But also the GCC has been um, uh, an organization that has helped Uh, and worked with international partners, especially the United States. There are a lot of negotiations that are taking place on the security issue, but also on the free uh, trade trade, uh, negotiations. There is a free trade negotiations with the European Union. There's free trade negotiations with China and and other uh, countries. And all of this has come to a standstill. Um, So... In my opinion, this is really uh, something that the GCC will uh, have to rethink how it is going to work. Uh, in terms of uh, uh, confronting terrorism and radicalization in the region, the GCC states work with the U- U.S. Um, in terms of securing the region, the GCC states worked with the U.S., and that security cannot be achieved uh, if the GCC states all... Don't collaborate together. Uh, you have to have a collective security for the whole region, and it really hampers uh, the uh, United States and the international coalition efforts against uh, terrorism, and it hampers also the uh, United States efforts against confronting Iran, and it protecting the region. If you if you have conflict within the house, within your own house, it's going to be very difficult to protect. Uh, and you allow other people to come in and meddle in your uh, situation. And this is what is happening now. We have seen regional countries taking advantage of this. We've seen the Iranians, of course, are taking advantage of this, but we've also seen the Turks uh, as well. We've given them room because of this crisis, but also international, other international powers who would like to step in. And I don't think Russia is far away from the region. And they do have an interest in um, having uh, some, uh, a foothold in the region. So I think time has come that the GCC state's leadership thinks seriously about protecting this regional organization, about protecting this project that the founding fathers have created, leading to um, more integration and more cooperation and more security and prosperity. And I will save you, Dr. John Duke, the the second note. Thank you very
0: much. (laughs) (laughs) Khaled El-Jaba, professor of political communication at Qatar University. Uh, How I would have loved to have had a course Uh, available like that in undergraduate school. So he's pioneering in in terms of uh, stretching the envelope and he's also uh, been involved in editing uh, the largest English language newspaper in his country, The Peninsula, among other things, and he's a National Council International Affairs Fellow.
3: Thank you, Dr. John, this is all about me. Appreciate it, Ladies and gentlemen, if we would like to talk about the Gulf region, we need to take a look to big picture in the Middle East and North Africa regions. And if you, if you would like to mark a label for the MENA region, the best description, is to see it as a place of manufacturing a crisis, place that producing a crisis after a crisis. The continuing domestic and external crisis clearly appeared after the explosion of so-called the Arab Spring by the end of 2010 and the beginning of 2011. And without doubt, it revealed various changing that reflect the nature of the transition phases and interaction pattern in the Middle East and North Africa region. The questions that has been asked over the past seven years and it is still being asked whether the reason lie on the Arab Spring and its outcomes or it's in the entire go to the Arab countries system and politics in economy, in education? Is the problem internal or external, inside or outside? Is it the religion approach, sectarian, secularism, regime or state, the monarchy or the military state? Is it democracy and election or liberalism? Or is not about the political or open the political door for the new generation or still reinforcing the wisdom to the elders or whether letting women drive a car or allowing her to drive the country. The Arab world still remains the lowest rates in the political development and economic growth in the highest rates of the employment worldwide, particularly among youth and women. In the Middle East, the idea of the state is not dependent on the state of its citizen. It's obvious, responsive to their wishes and needed. Instead, the state and the people in the most Arab world were set against each other. The dilemma drives numerous people, particularly young generation, to seek better future across the border, especially in the Western countries. The lesson of seven years taught us that the death of the old order does not mean that the old guard is no longer active in the region. On the country, dictatorship regime and police state are still the main model of government in the region. Therefore, investing in dictatorship regime from various Western governments will not bring stability, security, or perspective to the region. This is very important to know the big picture before we go and discuss the Gulf region dealing with the whole problem in the Middle East. Because the battle in the Arab world today is no longer about identity and politics. It's not, it's, it's not about to label ourselves, we are Islamic or secular. It's about how to govern. It's about giving everyone a fair share of the state resources, about creating a state which protect people rather than prayer of its people. It's about functional and fair-minded economy, transparency, and accountable government. If we move to Gulf region, we'll find that the current Gulf crisis is one of the worst crises ever that the Gulf countries have witnesses. There has never been boycott or blockade of the GCC members' state at this level in the history of an institutional. The Gulf state were generally characterized as a human, homogeneous and stable state in the region when compared to the oil and other Arab countries. The issue surrounding this crisis is deeper than what appear on the surfaces. The crisis revealed new variables and changing that reflect the transaction across the MENA region that we talked about it in the beginning of this paper, which impacted both its internal and external relation as well. Since the separate of the Arab Spring, the Gulf state have each in their own way attempt to maintain stability in their countries, and thus has translated into a different domestic interest that influenced their foreign policies across the region. The GCC are in the disagreement about key regional issues, such as the war in Syria, the Libya, Yemen relation with Iraq, Egypt, Tunisia, Turkey, and how to deal with Iranian threats. The crisis revealed major flaws in the GCC as an institution with regard to applying the mechanism in a place to resolve, dispute, and reach compromise among its members. Although Article 4 for GCC state that the objective in the council is to depend on strength, connection, relation, and cooperation between its people and its various the opposite has happened in this crisis. Unfortunately, the discussion today about the GCC is marked different from yesterday. Rhetoric of unity uh, and the challenge presented by this crisis to the future of GCC are great and profound. Previously, the focus was the cooperation, unity, economy, integration with open market and common currency now is changing, there is a, 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 a better reality of whether the GCC system will still exist in its current form. As the crisis persists without any solution in a sight, the feeling of a lost confidence among members, the member state has increased. Members feel that their sovereignties, including their politics, decision-making process, A plus in a national and international are being undermined. Some observers begin to discuss whether or not all the six GCC country will remain part of the council. The current situation is pushing some states also to build a new alliance with a regional or international power, which could have the GCC union to become merel a symbolic institution similar to the Arab multi organization, such as the Arab League. This is a crisis across borders and has a huge implication behind the Gulf region. For example, did not just appear to divide only GCC, but also caused a division in Washington today. Washington turned into literally a GCC of proxy war between media, think tank, and other lobbying and politician. Even the different and government agencies were divided about this crisis. This has created a new paradigm in Washington from viewing the GCC as the unity as before. Its divide GCC also makes it challenging for the US to pursue its regional objective such as winning the war on terror, realizing that the international community from the United States and European Union, Britain and even China all are eager to see the GCC crisis resolved. The big question that remains is whether the next Gulf summit will be held on schedule. Will this crisis further impact what remains of the Gulf Cooperation Council, which lasts for nearly 36 years? so far. The latest, but not the last. We can clarify that United States and the Gulf monarchy have a profoundly different views about political order, personal freedom, and gender relation. What links the two is not values, but interest. Those interests are substantial, and they have sustained a productive beneficial relation for decades. Therefore, there is one of the most important thing that Washington need to keep in mind, which encourage its Gulf allies to put their differences behind them and take a common position supporting regional stability. Thank you all for listening.
0: Next, uh, Dr. Fahad Nasr. uh who is a prolific uh, scholar, researcher, writer uh, with numerous uh, publications to his credit. Dr. Nasr.
4: Well, Thank you very much, Dr. Anthony. And uh, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations um, for inviting me to speak in front of this august audience. Uh, and it's a real honor and pleasure to be among uh, such a distinguished panel. Uh, I would like to preface my remarks by stressing that the views I express here today or any day for that matter are strictly my own views. I do not speak on behalf of the Saudi embassy or the Saudi government in any way. Um, So I'd like to focus on um, Saudi Arabia's foreign policy and provide a little bit of context um, to the policies and its uh, the positions it has uh, maintained over the past few years, uh, like some of my previous colleagues, um, I agree that the region has witnessed unprecedented uh, violence, political violence, and uh, tumultuous times since 2011. The so-called Arab Spring has proved to be extremely destabilizing. The political order as we know it was upended in 2011, and in many ways the region has yet to fully recover uh, from that disruption. The political and humanitarian crises that have resulted have been very difficult to resolve, not just for the countries of the region and for the people most impacted by it, who are the people living in in these countries, but that has also been very difficult for the neighboring countries and for the wider uh, international community. And um, while many countries have used every means at their disposal to try to resolve some of these political uh, conflicts and to lessen or alleviate the humanitarian suffering, unfortunately some other actors have um, used this opportunity and used their political and security vacuum to advance their very uh, narrow self-interests at the expense of the people of of the countries, um, their neighbors, and the stability of their region. Um, And here I'm speaking about non-state actors, militant organizations, terrorist groups, and also some state actors that routinely violate the norms, conventions, and laws of international relations. They do this by interfering in the domestic affairs of other nations and by adopting policies that destabilize other countries and entire regions. Um, Unfortunately, the non-state actors are many, Um, the most infamous of which is the group that I like to call Daesh, or His Royal Highness Prince Turkil Faisal, who I believe will be speaking uh, soon, Uh, famously called it Fahish, and I think that's a very apt description of that group. Um, The world has watched in horror over the past three or four years as Daesh has inflicted unspeakable crimes, death and destruction on the Middle East, on the wider Arab region, across the Islamic world, and also carried some of its brutality to the West, including here in the United States and Europe. Uh, and Daesh has also waged war uh, against several countries. There is the perception that it has waged a war against Europe and and the United States and the West, and that is partly true, but to be honest, I think that Daesh has really declared a war against all of humanity. It has conducted several terrorist attacks in Saudi Arabia, and as I mentioned uh, earlier, Kuwait, Egypt, Uh, have not been spared either and it has also inspired attacks here in the United States Britain, Belgium and France. Uh, Al-Qaeda and its various affiliates uh, rather continues to um, spawn offsprings like a malignant tumor across the region and they have also brought nothing but death and destruction uh, to the countries in which they have um, risen. In addition there are other militant organizations that have also shown complete disregard for the well-being, security, and safety of people in the region and beyond. Um, Here, the two primary examples that I can think of are Hezbollah in Lebanon and the Houthis in Yemen. Um, Unfortunately, it is not only non-state actors that have destabilized the region. As my colleague, um, Dr. Mohammed, has said, um, Iran has been the... Foremost, state sponsor of terrorism for decades. It has continued to defy international laws, norms, and conventions by supporting militant groups like Hezbollah in Yemen, uh, rather, sorry, Hezbollah in Lebanon and the Houthis um, in Yemen. And again, at the expense of of the countries of uh, Lebanon, uh, Yemen, and any other country where Iran feels that it has the right to interfere in the domestic affairs and by, by supporting non-state actors. Um, and a few, just a few months ago, I think the U.S. Department of State correctly once again declared that Iran is the foremost state sponsor of terrorism. And while Iran's compliance with the nuclear agreement that it, that it reached with six nations over its nuclear uh, activities is a matter of dispute, there's no disputing the fact that Iran, as, as I mentioned, continues to be a major source of instability in the Arab world and the wider Muslim world and uh, across the international community uh, as a whole. And I think President Donald Trump made that very clear when he spoke about Iran last week. Uh, so against this foreboding backdrop, um, you do have uh, Saudi Arabia, which is, as everybody in this room knows, is the birthplace of Islam. It is home to its two holiest sites. And because of that fact, Saudi Arabia enjoys a special status in the Muslim world. Saudi Arabia is also the world's biggest exporter of crude oil. It is also the Middle East's largest economy. Because of these facts, I think that there is an expectation in the Arab world, and also in the wider Muslim world, that Saudi Arabia is best positioned to play a leadership role to help bring some political stability and to meet some of the many economic challenges that confront the Arab world and the wider Muslim world. And I think Saudi Arabia recognizes the position, the unique position that it is in. It uh, realizes that it it is indeed blessed to be the custodian of the two holy mosques and it has also been blessed by uh, its oil wealth. Um, Towards that end, it has done everything that it can, used every political, economic tool at its disposal uh, to bring stability and prosperity to the region and beyond. Um, However, Saudi Arabia has always, I think it's important to stress that it has always operated within the confines of international relations and whenever possible, uh, has sought multilateral solutions and coalitions to resolve these Uh, political challenge. So as some of my colleagues have already said, the challenges in the region are many. Uh, As far as Saudi Arabia is concerned, the two primary challenges are the ones stemming from non-state actors in the form of Daesh. Saudi Arabia has done everything it can to counter Daesh. It has uh, hunted down its supporters inside Saudi Arabia and beyond. It has foiled many of its plots in Saudi Arabia and beyond, including here in the United States, and it has also discarded and discredited its false narrative on religious grounds. Saudi Arabia has also made it very clear that it will confront Iran's destabilizing uh, policies in the region, and uh, in the latest example, it has expressed its very strong support for uh, the U.S. administration's new strategy uh, on Iran which does take into account its various nefarious activities in the region and does not draw this uh, rather artificial uh, separation between its nuclear file and its uh, activities in the region. And uh, Dr. Anthony handed me a paper, and I think I'll leave it there. Thank you.
0: I handed him a valentine because I like him so much. <laughs> Uh, No, we're uh, moving along here, and we'll have almost a half an hour for discussion there, which is uh, going to be uh, rich as well. Uh, Ambassador Susan Ziada, an individual known to many, if not most, in this audience by uh, reputation and name and fame, uh, and from her illustrious uh, family, uh, and having come into the uh, Foreign Service uh, career path uh, a little later than some, uh, but uh, rising to be Deputy Chief of Mission in, uh, in Riyadh and then uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary of State, most recently and in between, uh, U.S. Ambassador to the State of Qatar, Ambassador Susan Ziada.
5: So I have the uh, task of trying to summarize a bit. Uh, I didn't have the papers in advance, so I felt like I was back in graduate school taking (laughs) copious notes trying to figure out what were the major takeaways from the presentations. Uh, I'll try to uh, just mention a few highlights and then try and see if we can put them in a little bit of perspective. Uh, And if I misrepresent something, I hope you'll forgive me for the... uh, trying to do this in a, in a brief, succinct way. Uh, Dr. Mohammed Al sulami uh, talked a lot about uh, the Iran uh, deal, the fact that uh, Saudi Arabia and many of the GCC states, actually, so far, Saudi Arabia and I believe uh, the UAE have expressed their concern about uh, Iran's malevolent behavior in the region, uh, concern about missile de- uh, development and the fact that our policy as a U.S. cannot be limited to the JCPOA. So this seems to be uh, a major theme. Uh, Dr. Abdullah uh did a marvelous uh, over-summary uh, of some of the uh, strengths of the GCC, but again, focused on the fact that with tensions in the region right now, uh, not only do the steps that countries have taken, um, uh, act uh, in contravention to treaties that have taken place, but more importantly for us as the United States, it hampers GCC uh, cooperation, particularly on the issue of Iran and uh, on counterterrorism, which of course affects our homeland. Uh, Dr. Khalil Dejaber also was talking about the important role that Washington has to play and the fact that uh, we have become in some ways not the backdrop but uh, an additional playing field for some of these tensions and that we as a government uh, should be thinking more clearly about ways uh, to um, bring parties together to look for the unifying uh, elements within the GCC. And then uh, Dr. Nasser again um, emphasized the strength of Saudi Arabia in terms of its size, wealth, uh, its uh, protection of the holy places, and the role that it plays in terms of stability and what I always call is the big brother of the GCC in the region. And the fact that they see their role as the big brother and therefore their thinking on non-state actors, their thinking on um, Iran's uh, destabilizing role in the region uh, certainly often is ascendant. I would just make two comments from my experience Uh, having worked in the GCC my last job as Deputy Assistant Secretary. I focused for two years on that uh, topic uh, at the State Department. Before then, I spent 12 years uh, in my career working in senior jobs in GCC countries. Um, So I think I would point to a couple of things. First of all, these countries, when they did come together, they have different uh, personalities. They have different objectives. They have different uh, criteria for how they see this relationship. Um, There are some countries that believe in you're either with us or against us, and they see things in rather binary terms. There are other countries, and I'll point, for example, Oman, you know, uh, friend to all, enemy to none, and see their role as, as a, a very different type of role. But the fact of the matter is that even till today, the GCC has had tremendous cooperation, particularly on the military side, working with us in the Gulf, whether it's uh, the task force that uh, patrol the Persian Gulf and the change of command that has now gone through different GCC countries leading that, uh, task force, or the fact that you have uh, different uh, LNOs posted at NAFSent in Bahrain, uh, or you have the CAOC, the Combined Air Operations Center in El Udeid in Qatar, with elements not only from uh, Western governments but from all the GCC countries to uh, help us in the United States in terms of our prosecution of the war in Afghanistan and Iraq and in protection of Gulf waters all the way from Afghanistan through the Horn of uh, Africa up through the Suez Canal. So there is still a lot of cooperation on that level. I would say also that if you look at some of the areas uh, that are economic, the new tax um, codes that will be coming into the GCC countries, these have all been negotiated within the context of the GCC. They will be implemented at different stages, but it's a common theme and a common way of bringing around reform on economics where you have countries that have been based on, uh, on um, energy sources having to diversify their economies and looking at similar ways to do that. So I think that while we sometimes think that uh, the tensions will outweigh the the commonalities, the fact is that these countries have become a bit more muscular than they have been in the past. They are looking at things sometimes in more nationalistic ways that does uh, tint the way they approach things. But there are still common... Uh, There are still common uh, issues that bind them. There are still operational issues where they work together, and it seems to me that we as the United States have the opportunity to continue to focus on those areas and keep those threads and those linkages together in hopes that whatever tensions are taking place right now can dissipate through a common platform. Thank you.
0: Thank you, uh, Ambassador Ziada, for an excellent uh, summary on short notice and with uh, and, uh, no, diffi- uh, no end of difficulty in, in achieving that feat. Next is uh, Abdul Rahman Al Iriani, who is the principal economic and commercial officer at the Embassy of, of Yemen and who has followed uh, the Yemen Civil War and uh, his own country's. Uh, uh modernization and development of difficulties and challenges as closely as as anyone i have met here in washington dc mr Iriani
6: thank you dr anthony for the uh generous introduction uh, it seems w- well, let me thank the speakers as well for, the, for, an informative, uh, for your informative remarks. Uh, I think we're, we, we've covered the political and uh, the security issues uh, uh, hearing our uh, speakers, but I wanted to address uh, more on the uh, emergence of the post-Arab Spring political economy. Uh, it brings additional challenges to a pre-existing challenges. Challenges mainly are coming now from conflict-affected countries like Yemen, Syria, Iraq, Libya, and this is to add to pre-existing challenges that I've mentioned, uh, low growth of, uh, of uh, job growth. Uh, we are a, a region with the lowest job growth in the in the uh, world. And uh, we are, uh, we need to produce at least 100, about 100 million jobs within the next decade. Uh, half of our populations across the Middle East are below 30 years old. In addition to that, um, we have, um, Poverty issues, 3rd of our populations are uh, in the poverty line. Uh, trading growth issues uh, among our countries uh, in the region, uh, it's slowing down. And productivity in countries in the Middle East is slowing down too. So now the conflict-affected countries have special challenges. And, they, and these are mainly to how do they finance their, conf, uh, their, their recovery uh, needs. And it is expected that they would need at least about 500, $500 billion dollars within the next 10 years, and you know, plus the cost of unwinding the war economies, the mobilization and disarmament of militias in, in Yemen and elsewhere, these will cost additional uh, will incur additional costs. So, despite the so, how does the GCC countries can play a role here, and despite these economic challenges in the region? Uh, GCC donors have been playing a critical role for the past four decades, funding projects, uh, development projects, uh, in Arab and non-Arab countries, and most of their um, and, and their kind of their assistance is usually geared towards funding infrastructural projects. So we now understand that the GCC countries can play a role in this regard, but we need to figure out what are the drivers, what is the catalyst. Is it fear is it security concerns because this is what we've been hearing in the news recently or most reports uh, if, if you have a collapsed neighbor uh, it would bring in security issues into your doorstep um, Terrorism is another issue if you have a collapsed economy in the in the region this country is prone to, be, to fall uh, uh, and to become weak in the face of terrorism uh, it is a legitimate concern but it should not be the predominant Uh, reason for uh, funding or for uh, initiative to address the economic challenges in the region. Uh, There are productivity benefits from having a uh, cohesive and stable regional economy, uh, which unlocks additional productivity for the GCC countries, and especially that the GCC countries are working to uh, diversify their economies. You you have a stable neighbor, you have more investment opportunities in that stable neighbor. And, uh, and it, it protects; it serves as a, as a protection for the entire Middle East uh, in the face of outside influence. Uh, and, and so, to conclude my comment, um, I, I'm stealing this from a, uh, a minister who he had mentioned. I, I, I kind of heard him speaking at the IMF and the World Bank. He said that our economies individually are small, and we need therefore a collective approach to address our economic challenges. And these collective approach and, and initiatives uh, they should be built on common interests and shared priorities and I, I hope um, in the discussions to come out here I, I, I have more to share but I will keep it at, at in here uh, I will stop here but I, I look forward to hearing more from the speakers thank you very much
0: Thank, thank you, Mr. Al-Iriani. And we will have an opportunity, to, we will provide you one to elaborate on some of the themes that you just uh, uh, touched the surface on t- when you introduced them. Um, let me uh, read uh, some of the questions so that the juices in your respective minds can begin to flow even more um, pointedly and with a focus. And then um, I'll take your hands uh, uh, in terms of the ones that you, you want to respond to there, or you feel, feel more pertinent, relevant, or comfortable responding to. Uh, one is do you see any possible common grounds between Saudi Arabia and Iran to help bring back stability to Syria, Yemen, and Lebanon? and uh, not just limiting it to Saudi Arabia, but any of the GCC countries, uh, including Saudi Arabia. is one uh, for uh, Drs. Baabud and al-Jabba regarding the Qatar crisis. How, if at all, do you see a role for His Majesty Sultan Qaboos of Oman, the region's eldest statesman and longest ruling leader? To perhaps effectively mediate among the GCC's quote unquote warring factions. Uh, uh, How do you interpret Qatar's behavior after the Arab Spring? This is for Dr. Khalid al Jabba. And why, in your view, do you think? Qatar uh, decided to sacrifice its relation with the Gulf states. For what purpose? You can take issue with the premise of the question, if you like. You can answer it any uh, way you please. Uh, uh, Dr. Baboub and al Jabba both, as the threats to Arabia seem to expand and diversify, uh, can you be a little more specific as to how you see this possibly affecting the current composition or makeup of the GCC? Uh, another one, taking a broader perspective of the region to include South Asia. Uh, as India and Pakistan come into this at all? They have uh, hundreds of thousands of their nationals uh, in the GCC uh, countries there and um, things going on with Hindu nationalism on the rise in India. Uh, How, if at all, does that affect the GCC's relationship with those two countries? Is it a distraction? Is it a cause uh, for concern? There's another one on the um, uh, foreign labor in the development of the GCC countries. Um, Of course, the media has been overwhelmingly critical, and no matter what uh, new rules, regulations and laws and systems the GCC countries introduced to address this issue, the uh, media criticism does not let up. Uh, So uh, in what ways would you describe the existing system, including the reforms? as uh, efficient or reasonably efficient or manageably efficient and equitable. Um, Here's one, to what extent would it have been relatively easy to solve the internal conflict within the GCC if the U.S. had stopped the sale of weapons to them until they had resolved their uh, differences there? Um, there's another one having to do with uh, the degree to which uh, extremist elements inside of Saudi Arabia <coughs> have um, exacerbated uh, the rise of extremist uh, organizations such as Daesh or Al-Qaeda. And, uh, Lebanon uh, any further comment on Lebanon's involvement through Hezbollah or otherwise, given the United States uh, engagement with uh, Lebanon, providing it with arms, and um, if that has uh, deterred Israel. Uh, Two more, then I'll stop and let you go at it. Uh, Is the GCC a vibrant organization pending the current problems it is facing or is it uh, in its last uh, and hardly its finest hour in um, GCC's involvement in Syria uh, there are differences between Saudi Arabia and Qatar in their approaches to, uh, to uh, the situation in uh, Syria um, that's, that's enough anybody I want to raise their hand and go first Yes, uh, Dr. Salami.
1: Yes, sir. I will talk about the first question, which is Saudi and Iran. Uh, in Iran, we have two sides of the of Iran. We have to we have the government and we have what they can call the deep state, which is the Revolutionary Guard and the Khamenei office. The government, Rouhani, Zarif, and others talk about. Uh, solving the problem with the GCC, with the Arab world, and especially with Saudi Arabia. The problem is that they cannot deliver. They give promises, but they cannot deliver. The other side is, I mean, the Revolutionary Guard, we see their behavior in the region. So I don't think they will stop uh, the project they announced since 1979, which is supporting the revolution and constructing what they call the greater uh, state, what the Mahdabi state, which is a sectarian state. Uh, So, uh, unless, in my opinion, Iran stops its behavior in the region and uh, deliver their promises, there will be no chance, unfortunately, to compromise or find a solution between Iran and the GCC or the Arab countries, uh, what we see in the region now, especially in Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, and Yemen and Bahrain, is a good example of the Iranian project in the region geopolitical Shias and uh, Unless Iran stops interfering in the internal affairs and domestic affairs of the Arab countries and Saudi Arabia, and specific, in the eastern province of Saudi Arabia, uh, unfortunately, again, we cannot see any light in the end of the tunnels. Uh, mm-hmm. we, we hope, but uh, it is uh, on the Iranian side to, to decide if they want to turn from a revolutionary state to a normal state, to coexist with their neighbor countries. Okay.
0: Thank you very much. And, and if each of you would try to be similarly succinct, um, we've got time here to get a great deal of information and insight, knowledge, and understanding out here. Uh, next person want to take a step and only one, answer one question at a time, and we'll come back. Yes, uh, Dr. Naza. Yeah,
4: if, um, if I could just add to what Dr. Hammer just said, um, I'm a big believer in the power of uh, goodwill gestures. So um, when it comes to Iran, um, a few years ago, I mean, Iran has its animosity towards Saudi Arabia is to such an extent that it has even used the hajj um, as, as a, a time to play politics, which, um, frankly, I think offends the sensibilities of certainly old Saudis, but I think also the wider uh, Muslim population around the world. So uh, about three years ago, there was a tragic accident uh, at the Hajj. And instead of uh, expressing its condolences to the victims and offering uh, assistance the way most nations around the world did, Iran used that very tragic accident to, again, play politics and to start making rather absurd calls for uh, the uh, uh, internationalization of of the holy mosques, which, um, Mm -hmm. again, I think that's, uh, frankly, as a Saudi, I think that's every Saudi finds that as a non-Saudi and just offensive. Um, So if you play politics, if even if something as as sacred as the, the right of the hajj, Uh, cannot be outside of politics as far as Iran is concerned Uh, unfortunately it leaves very little room uh, for relations to improve Mm -hmm. Um, I just don't don't see it happening anytime soon Thank you for bringing
0: up uh, the aspect of the hajj Uh, no one else had done so and you're right to introduce it it's a complex issue and uh, and an inflammatory one as well whenever it's politicized Dr. Babu Thank you Um,
2: when we look at the region around the Gulf states, around the GCC, uh, you you can see the whole region is in turmoil. Um, uh, Crisis everywhere. And these Gulf states, the GCC states, are the only island, as I said, uh, or oasis of stability within that uh, uh, turmoil sea. And if you add to it the current economic situation that the GCC states, but also the whole region is facing, that has been mentioned by Riani, uh, due mainly to the fall in oil prices, uh, you can see that the challenges are huge, especially that this is a region that has one of the highest percentage of you know, terms of uh, childbirth, but also a very, very young population looking for jobs and opportunities. And the last thing you want to see is conflicts in, in the region, and especially conflicts within the house itself within the GCC, within the family. That's the last thing you want to see. And, I, you know, I think this kind of conflict came at a really wrong time when the GCC should be working together, first of all, to protect themselves and to ensure their stability and prosperity, but at the same time, to help the region develop. Um, the question was, the, will the GCC continue? Will it end up? Will it, what is gonna be a new dimension? This is something that we really don't know. We have something in the, uh, in the GCC, we call it uh, a politics of kissing the noses. The leaders get together and they kiss their noses and they forget everything and they start all over again. So that might happen. Um, you know, this is the GCC, this is the Middle East, anything could, uh, could happen. But if this continues like this, it really doesn't bode well for the regional organization and for all of us uh, in the region. Is there going to be new members of the GCC? I think the GCC has to expand and has to change and has to evolve. This, this, this uh, conflict may really give it a chance to, to evolve. And I think the GCC should not forget Yemen, which I, we did not ma- talk about this. Yemen has always wanted to be part of the GCC, um, and now we have failed Yemen. Uh, And not only the GCC has has failed Yemen, but also the whole uh, international community has failed Yemen. And we are now paying the price for that. And we don't want to get into, you know, what happened and how, but Yemen has to be saved and has to be brought into somehow um, some kind of measures that the GCC uh, uh, states can incorporate Yemen within its region. They cannot be and continue to be just a club for rich people and the monarchies uh, uh, of, uh, of the Gulf. We need that to expand it to other regions so that the wealth and the prosperity uh, continues. And the very final point, I know you want to stop me, but okay. the very final point, the role of Oman. Oman is, of course, a very active member of the GCC, a country that believes in the GCC and in its integration. If, like all other countries in the GCC, it has its different outlooks. Uh, and and different strategic thinking. Um, Can it help? Yes, of course. Oman always likes to play the role of mediation. Um, They've done so in the past, and they will continue to do so in this crisis. However, as you know, His Majesty the Sultan uh, uh, is not very well. His health doesn't help him to do the shuttle travel between the GCC states. So uh, the Kuwaiti leader who's done uh, and helped in the previous crisis is doing that, and Oman is supporting that all the way because the last thing Oman wants to see is uh, a, a, a GCC that's becoming defragmented and, um, you know, collapse of this project that's important for everybody.
0: Thank you, Dr. Baaboub. I uh, will turn to um, Mr. Uh, from Yemen and uh, the focus uh, beyond uh, what you've said, um, uh, looking beyond a settlement of the conflict, how will aid humanitarian economic development be sent to disperse, distributed within Yemen? Multilaterally? Bilaterally? A hybrid between the two. Please <laughs> um, elaborate on that and the kissing of the noses, uh, whether there's likely to be nasal congestion uh, or a free-flowing passageway into the lungs?
6: (laughs) Thank thank you, Dr. Anthony, for your question. Uh, So, Yemen economic relations with the GCC is strategic. Uh, For instance, in Saudi Arabia, we have about 2.5 million migrant workers. There are uh, remittance flow that comes from Saudi Arabia in the the amount of uh, Uh, in in, in that amount of of, uh, $2.5 to $3 billion. So we are geared, we positioned ourselves to speak with our uh, neighbors, with our permanent neighbors. Uh, We want to capitalize on that uh, strategic partnership with Saudi Arabia and the GCC in general. Uh, there are different venues from where we can, uh, you know, uh, channel aid from the GCC. You have the bilateral uh, funds and you have the regional funds. The bilateral funds, such as the Saudi Fund for Development, Abu Dhabi Fund for Development, and the Kuwait Fund for Economic Development. And the, for the regional ones, you have the Islamic Development Bank uh, and the Arab uh, and the Arab Economic and Social Development. I might be uh, not mentioning it right, but it's based in Kuwait. Uh, so for instance, the Islamic Development Bank, we've already initiated um, discussions, and they've been very helpful. They've initiated a uh, a, a, a survey, a damage and needs uh, survey, assisting the EU and the World Bank. So the, the thing is, we should not wait until the conflict ends in Yemen. Um, we need to uh, work uh, in areas that have been stabilized by the government, and elsewhere as well. I mean, the government of Yemen is open, of course, for to go into uh, uh, across all the countries, uh, whether that is in areas controlled by the government or not controlled by the government. And so we, we need to capitalize as well on the GCC's donors approach, uh, that approach that, that that they emphasize on donors and recipient uh, dialogue. Uh, and, and they've been using this approach for the past four decades. It has affected, it has uh, uh, aided in, in, in making sure that uh, f- flow of aid is effective. Um, and they've been utilizing the South-South model of, uh, of uh, aid giving. This has kind of uh, been uh, countering the uh, already pre-existing uh, aid uh, model that has been there from the um, multilateral organizations. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, we need to emphasize that these funds in the, in the GCC are, are flexible and uh, they're adaptable. And uh, we need to highlight that we share with the GCC, of course, a linguistic, cultural and religious ties. Uh, it, it makes it easier for us to communicate Yemen needs uh, and you know they, they the GCC in general upholds as well uh, the counterparties sovereignty uh, and uh, so it, it's frank discussions that we have with these donors and we're very pleased with the productive recent talks that we've had. Uh, with these funds. So, uh, I, uh, to sum up, I, I think that these funds can play a strategic role, not only in Yemen, but elsewhere uh, in the region, too. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Um, and th- that was yesterday, or I think this morning, a U.S. Agency for International Development official and representative here. Um, I'd like to see the two of you engage one another uh, in terms of uh, what can you learn from each in terms of past lessons uh, perceived. Uh, Ambassador Ziada, are you um, comfortable coming in here now? What would you like me to discuss? Uh, Taking any of the questions? that I I don't mind,
5: but which one specifically?
0: Um, (laughs) All right, let's let's put this one out. Uh, People wonder when the um, uh, crisis will be resolved Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. whether the parties will uh, get back together. What do you think you're looking at? on this dais
5: so he saved me they are together yeah no they they are together look uh, these countries in the region uh, that are part of the GCC (laughs) even before the GCC they are countries that have lived together groups of people that have lived together as neighbors uh, their families their tribes their relations their economic development their um, uh, investments crisscross uh, borders all up and down the Gulf. I always joked and said it was so easy living and serving in the Gulf because I never had to learn a new set of names every time I moved from one country to the other because they were the same names. And the fact is that their culture is so similar. They have different personalities. They have different uh, ways of doing things that stems in part from their different populations. There are some differences, Bahrain for example with a, with a more um, uh, heterogeneous uh, population, uh, Oman of course is different because of its geography, where it's situated. But at the end of the day, these are countries that have in the past had differences, differences over borders. Uh, differences over even uh, economic development. I remember when I was serving in Bahrain, you had a situation where we were negotiating the free trade agreement between uh, the US and Bahrain. And I will tell you that the Saudis were not very happy about that, because for them, this went outside the confines of the GCC and a common tariff. And they did have a perspective on that, I might add. But the fact is that, at times, uh, some of these countries and groupings followed their own, what I would call, more uh, narrow nationalist interests. So there is a history of that, and it ebbs and it flows, and sometimes it's this neighbor, and sometimes it's that neighbor. But I think the common thing that has been stated here is the fact that there are threats in the region, whether it is uh, uh, hege- you know, hegemonic threats from Iran— whether it's counterterrorism, whether it's the fact that even if we've taken Raqqa, ISIS is not dead and could resurrect itself in some other form. Al-Qaeda is still in the Arabian Peninsula and we're (coughs) starting to see bits and pieces of it spring up now in Syria. So there are threats that are more reason for common cause and for them to bring themselves together. I think uh, it will eventually get solved. I think each one will have each side and the different sides. They're not just two sides, I might add. Uh, We'll have to look at ways that they can maybe amend either their demands or how they're doing things. But at the end of the day, uh, I don't think it's a uh, tenable uh, situation because now you start seeing outside forces, whether it's Russia, whether it's Iran, whether it's Turkey, Uh, other elements trying to impose their uh, will on, uh, on the region. And certainly these countries are looking to other alliances, China, the Far East, because those are where their markets are. So it certainly is, I come back to the U.S. national interest. It certainly is in our U.S. national interest to try and bring the parties together and to bring all of our best diplomatic tools to bear uh, to bring this, uh, to ameliorate this crisis and to uh, focus on the unifying elements, economic, military, and security and intelligence. Mm.
0: Thank you, Ambassador Ziada. Now, uh, Dr. uh, Khaled al-Jabbar, your turn. Uh,
3: Regarding to the crisis, I think there is a lot of kissing noises and kissing other thing, but (laughs) definitely uh, the problems has been there for a long time. Uh, This is what I believe. Why it's happened today, uh, a lot of issues. The easier way to put it, I think when we are in Washington, the White House is so close. I think the president play a big role with that part, and we can talk about this more after that, if you like to (laughs) to talk about it. Uh, The crisis, the Gulf crisis. I think we bought a time. Uh, I believe this crisis, it could be happen in 2012. After the Arab Spring, we bought time it's 7 years after it's happening the gcc that states the way that they look to the problems is different now how we look to the egypt for example now with the regime should we invest deeply with them or put a border and respect democracy how do we deal with tunisia should we go like deeply with some players believe in political Islam as a brotherhood, or we, we have to support counter-revolution at what we're doing with some GCC country in, in Libya. What about Syria? What about the war in Yemen now? The coalition and the black uh, listed in United Nations. It's a lot of issues we have to deal with. It's not about sacrifice, Qatar sacrifices relationship, this logo, it's it's hard to sell here. I think it's a lot of problem. We need to sit at GCC countries. We used to do this for 36 years and put priority and discuss it one by one and put a strategy how to deal with this relation between ourselves as a GCC country and the other countries b- behind us, sorry. Uh, because uh, since we, like, we live in the region, there's a lot of failure states surrounding us, Iraq, Yemen, other countries, and our relation with Europe and United States. Deeply inside, I believe we're going to – this crisis is not going to be uh, forever. It's going to take time, but in the end, it's resolved. This is what I believe.
0: Okay. Um and taking the liberty of the uh, chair here, and we we're t- trying to task our speakers to come up with recommendations for improvement of policies. Um, here's one. Um, there are various agreements, between, bilateral uh, thus far, between the United States and each of these countries for access to facilities or defense cooperation agreements. Or uh, even to uh, monitor more closely uh, the outward flows of uh, charitable financial contributions from uh, non state actors uh, to extremist uh, groups elsewhere in the region. Um, The United States has had three summits, heads of summits, with these heads of states in the last four years. Uh, The United States has not had anything remotely like that in um, United States history. So there's no question about the importance that the American government uh, uh, posits in the globally vital, bilaterally vital uh, composition of of this region. And so the United States, let's say today is uh, uh, October the 18th, could say on uh, November the 7th, um, we invite uh, representatives of all six countries uh, to further implement uh, the agreements that we have signed together. And um, well, we can do so in Kuwait, we can do so in Oman, uh, we can do so at Camp David. And uh, I would venture to say, some would immediately say count us in, And uh, let's see who would say sorry and uh, bear the burden of saying no to their partner, uh, which is the world's strongest uh, military, economic, financial, scientific, and technological partner that is tasked to protect them. Um, That, I think, if the six would say yes, then they're back together. Okay? Um, and all of this, um, we see our limitations, but the extraordinary expertise and specialization and skills, leadership and otherwise, analytical, scholarly, and making uh, accurate assessments of uh, six people up here. And uh, at the end of the day, but also at the beginning and the middle, uh, None of us are bereft of blemish. Uh, Not one of us is uh, devoid of defect. And raise your hand if you are free from flaw. Uh, Thank you for your attention and please thank these uh, speakers on this important topic.